Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and I'll be joined in this episode by Cameron Brooks and Dan Reed. In this episode, Cameron asks a great question about my recent sermon on Zechariah 11. When Matthew cites the fulfillment of this prophecy from Zechariah, why does he attribute it to Jeremiah instead of Zechariah? Then I'll talk to Dan about the conclusion of The Generous Community, his sermon series on the book of Titus. We'll find out how Paul's private letters to people like Timothy and Titus differ from his epistles to churches. In our final segment, Cameron and I will explain why every new member of Grace receives the gift of a reader's Bible and what habits we hope this gift will instill. If you want to become a serious reader of the Bible, there are two books that I heartily recommend. They've been on my shelf for decades now and continue to do good service. One focuses on how to avoid misinterpreting the Bible, and the other is a handbook for grappling with difficulties in the Bible. The first book is D.A. Carson's classic, Exegetical Fallacies. This little book teaches you the tools of good interpretation mostly by exposing the faults of bad interpretation. It's a master class in careful, faithful reading of the Bible. The second book is Gleason Archer's Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. The 66 books that make up the Bible are ancient, and there are plenty of passages that cause us trouble today when it comes to interpretation. Some of these difficulties will be thrown in your face by people who use them as evidence that the Bible is unreliable. Archer patiently rallies the evidence and helps you think through each question in a deliberate way. We'll put links to both of these resources in the show notes. The reason I mention these books is that Cameron is about to waylay me with a difficulty from my sermon last Sunday on Zechariah 11. The 30 pieces of silver from the prophecy tied directly to the price paid to Judas for his betrayal of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. But when you read the account in Matthew, there's a bit of a problem. So in your sermon on Sunday, you talked a little bit about the 30 pieces of silver that make an appearance in Zechariah. And you mentioned how we hear of 30 pieces of silver elsewhere, famously in Matthew, which was the sum that Judas betrayed Jesus for. In the, the actual text of Matthew, though, where this is accounted, he says it's a fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah. So I was wondering if we could talk about this a little bit. There seems to be a discrepancy. Matthew says when, when Judas was hanged in the end, he fulfilled the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Then the reference in my Bible actually points to Zechariah, though. So I'm just a little bit confused. Can we, can we, I'm sure you ran into this maybe as you were preparing sure. your sermon. So what's going on here? I mean, of course, I was hoping you wouldn't notice that. But uh, <laughs> no, uh, actually, when you encounter uh, skeptics 
list of errors in the Bible, yeah. uh, this in Matthew 27 is one of the ones that you will often be pointed to because absolutely the, the verse that is quoted here is from Zechariah chapter 11, which is what I was preaching on. But when Matthew sets it up, he refers to the prophet Jeremiah, not Zechariah. And so the obvious conclusion is that Matthew got it wrong. Mm -hmm. He misquoted the Old Testament, and therefore the Bible is not infallible because here's a big error staring us in the face. So there are a couple of different attempts to explain what's going on here, and I'll give you kind of a flavor of them. This is stuff that in the sermon... I could not devote a lot of time to, but it's interesting, right. you know, in this format to be able to get into the nitty gritty a little bit. So, uh, so obviously one explanation is what we've already said. Matthew made a mistake. Uh, he just cited the wrong passage in scripture. He got his prophets confused uh, to err as human. No big surprise. Mm -hmm. Are there other ways of understanding what's going on here? So, uh, one argument that I've seen people make is this, that, so if you go to Jeremiah, Jeremiah does actually have a passage that has some resonance uh, with this story where there's a prophecy where Jeremiah goes to the potter's house. And so remember in Zechariah 11, the money is thrown to the potter. Here it's used in Matthew 27 to purchase a potter's field in order to bury Judas mm -hmm. and, and the, the, the indigent. So, yeah, I think that argument would say Matthew is, is thinking about this passage of Jeremiah's and thinking about what Zechariah said and kind of putting them together. And so he quotes the Zechariah passage, but he's citing Jeremiah because Jeremiah also talked about this. And, right. you know, you hear that and you're like, okay, well, maybe, maybe so. Yeah, I, th I think the difficulty with that one is that he actually quotes the right passage. Yes. He just gets the, apparently he gets the name of the prophet wrong. Right, right. Now, I feel the same, that that, that doesn't feel like the best explanation mm -hmm. to me either. So let's keep going okay. and, and look at other <laughs> possibilities. So, so another argument that is often made is that what's happening here is a scribal error. So the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, as articulated in the Westminster Standards, applies to the autographer, the original manuscripts. The doctrine of inspiration is not saying that every edition of the Bible is perfect in every way. It's saying that the original manuscripts were inspired. Because of that, there is an allowance made for the possibility of transmission errors. And so here, the name Zechariah and the name Jeremiah, they're close together and it's especially close if they're being abbreviated kind of in a Hebrew way with your vowels dropped out. You'd only need one letter to change to get this one wrong. And so that's the theory. And that's one that you can espouse without compromising your, your 
allegiance to the doctrine of inspiration. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, I think it's speculative. And once you've gone down that path of sort of hypothetical errors and, and, you know, inventing scribes to make these errors and it's not entirely satisfying as an explanation. So there's a, a third explanation that I think is, is probably the most persuasive. And it has to do with the way that someone like Matthew would have cited things in the Bible. So, you know, there's a division in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament between law and history and prophets. Jesus, for example, on the Emmaus Road, uh, can refer to the law and the prophets. And we understand that in this, this reference that Luke makes to you know, Jesus preaching from the law and the prophets, he means like from the Old Testament, mm-hmm. like from the, the whole of the books. Well, so apparently the scroll that the prophets were on in the Hebrew Bible begins with Jeremiah. And so if you were opening up the prophets, you'd be opening up the Jeremiah scroll. And so this can be a shorthand way of referring to the prophets as a whole to refer to Jeremiah, who kind of leads the pack, kind of in the way that we might say, you know, like as it says in the New Testament, Mm -hmm. without nailing down specifically which book it's in. Now, again, this is speculative, like trying to make sense of a difficulty, but I think that is an explanation that I find a little bit easier to understand than either the scribal error or the the kind of conflated texts in the mind of Matthew. Matthew obviously has a, a sophisticated understanding of what's what was going on during his time and how it fulfilled old testament prophets and that's that's ultimately what he's up to is he's trying to connect these dots and show us like okay in in the prophets you know a long time ago they talked about this and here we are this is to fulfill this event so i i guess to me personally that's kind of the the more important point i i agree i think that last explanation is satisfying to me but what's what's even more interesting to me is the way he draws out this specific verse that we've just recently encountered in in Zechariah and connects it to what's going on in the present to Jesus. Right. I think another takeaway is just that uh, apparent difficulties like this don't need to be the big stumbling blocks that people oftentimes think Mm -hmm. that there are often a number of possible explanations and it's important to stay focused on the big picture and what's really important in Matthew's account clearly is over and over again seeing the fulfillment of prophecy in the ministry of Jesus. This Sunday, Dan Reed's sermon series on the book of Titus comes to a close. The final sermon, Readiness and Its Reward, focuses on Titus 3 and its instructions on how the church is meant to relate to the surrounding world. Before our time in Titus wraps up, I wanted to ask Dan some questions about the pastoral epistles like Timothy and Titus and how they differ from Paul's letters to the churches. Dan, this Sunday you're going to be 
preaching on Titus 3, and that's going to bring our little series on Titus to a close. So in preparation for that final installment on this series, The Gracious Community, I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about the nature of this book of Titus and also the other pastoral epistles and and how they differ from other Pauline epistles because you've said as you've been working on these sermons that there are some differences here between these letters and the other letters of Paul. Uh, For example, the fact that they're written to private individuals. So I guess I'm wondering, Dan, are the pastoral epistles like Titus, are these like just private letters or would people in the church have have gotten a chance to see what was in these scrolls? Yeah, that's a great question. It's very interesting that uh, the other, you know, if you look at Romans or First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, they're all written to churches. Uh, but we have First and Second Timothy, Titus, and then Philemon as well. But they're all written to individuals. Uh, and so, if we look at the pastorals at First and Second Timothy and Titus, yeah, they're written to. Timothy and to Titus, and they're just personal correspondence between Paul and the individual. But the intention of these letters wasn't that it would stay private, but that it would actually be used in the church, that the church would have access to these, that there would be this apostolic authority that is being passed on to Timothy and Titus, uh, telling them this is what you're to do, and this is what the church is to look like, and this is how you're supposed to encourage the people of God. Okay, so Paul writes to Titus, And as we've seen, he's giving him a lot of uh, practical instruction on what we would call church planting, Mm. right? Titus is in Crete. He's got some challenges. It's a tough culture. And he's got to essentially create a countercultural community Mm. of believers here. And so this epistle, as brief as it is, gives him his marching orders. But do you think this is like the only instruction that that Titus would have received from Paul? Oh, no, no. I mean, and Titus, you know, and Timothy both were companions of Paul. And so they spent time watching Paul out doing ministry and planting churches. And so they would have been well acquainted with uh, his teaching and just his, his process and method in the different areas that he was planting the churches. And then Paul would have been teaching them along the way. I mean, Paul was just a, a teacher and he was sending these men out and sending them to Corinth and sending them to Ephesus and sending them to Crete. And so his goal was always to make disciples that were fit for the ministry and able to teach and preach and, and plant these churches. And so they would have had lots and lots of training under Paul. And if that's the case, it does raise an interesting point, which is why write the letters? Mm. If Paul has already downloaded all this information to them, they've sat at his feet, and and the epistles are going to be essentially reminders. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess maybe the the answer to that question is in the fact that these were not ultimately just private letters; mm-hmm. uh, that they would not only instruct Titus or Timothy in how to do that church planting work, but they would ultimately trickle down to the churches. Yeah. And the churches would be able to see uh, the marching orders mm-hmm. of the pastor. I mean, does that yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah no, I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, you're going to look at these letters and they're going to have two real 
One, Titus is going to need a reminder, especially as he's planting a church in a really tough situation. It's going to be easy to focus on problems uh, and not keep your eyes fixed on the goal, not not fixed on what is our church to be doing. But then, like you're saying, and a, a second aspect is it's going to give him uh, that authority that when people question him, when the Cretans are saying, why are you telling us this or why is that important? Uh, he can look and say, no, 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 look, this is what Paul has told me. He wrote to me about this. This is something to be emphasized here. I'm not doing this just because I think it's a great idea, but it actually comes with some authority. Uh, and so let's go back to this letter. Let's go look at what Paul has said and work through it together. And the funny thing about that is, I mean, that's basically how we use these letters to this day. Yeah. Right? When people ask, you know, why are you doing this the way that you're doing it? Why are you electing officers the way that you are? Why are the qualifications what they are? Mm-hmm. Why is your focus in the church on these things? We go back to uh, Titus or other epistles of Paul or other epistles of other apostles. And we say, well, we're doing it because of this. And, and you can see the marching orders that we've been given uh, we do the same thing with the westminster confession Hmm. Uh, we do it with our book of church order when people wonder why do you conduct the affairs of the church the way that you're conducting them uh, we can refer them to this public declaration of how we do things so that none of our none of our way of operating is hidden Mm-hmm. All of it is open and it's subject to scrutiny. It's something that you can like research in advance and understand and see where we're coming from mm-hmm. when we do these things. So I think relating to it that way gives us an interesting insight into a letter like Titus, because like Titus, you know, we are planting a church in an often very difficult culture. And we need all the reminders that he would have needed, and we need all the encouragement, but we also need like a, a standard higher than ourselves hmm. that we can refer people to, that we can point to and say, like, this is what we're doing. Like, this is the vision that we are trying to bring about. So the vision of the church as a gracious community that we see in this text is what we are trying to make our community look like. We want to take the ideal of that gracious community and create the reality of a gracious community here in our city. And in that sense, I think Titus is extremely relatable. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't have said that's absolutely right. So as we prepare for this final sermon in Titus 3, Uh, We want to encourage everyone listening to do what we've been encouraging all along, which is to read Titus 3 in advance. It wouldn't hurt to read the whole book of Titus. It's short enough so that you can refresh your memory. It's also a great idea to go back to our sermon podcast and re-listen to the earlier installments in the series. Since we've been trading off week after week and you're getting Zechariah one Sunday and then Titus another I think going into this conclusion, it's a great idea to go back and listen to the sermons Dan has already preached on Titus 1 and Titus 2, so that you've got that fresh in your mind as you come to worship and experience the finality of the gracious community.
At the top of the episode, I recommended tools for serious Bible readers. We're going to end with a brief word about another essential, a reader's Bible. If you've joined Grace during the time that I've been the pastor, you will have received one of these when you took your membership vows. If not, we'll put a link in the show notes. And now we're going to take a moment and explain to you why this is such a valuable addition when it comes to serious reading. So I have been a member at Grace for almost three years now. I think in September, it will be three years since Jenny and I made vows. And I remember back to that day, we were given a nice gift basket when we became members. And I was very excited because there were some books involved in this gift basket. One of the books was a Bible, of course, no surprise there. And I quickly noticed that it was a reader's Bible, not a big study Bible, Um, Not even just your standard, regular pew Bible, but a reader's Bible. And knowing you and how particular you are about many things, I wanted to ask, why? Why why a reader's Bible? (laughs) I I think they'll probably put that on my my tombstone. He was particular about many things. But uh, things about the liturgy or something like that. Yeah, no, no, there's there's no question. There's no question that I am particular about many things. And and the design of Bibles is one of those things. At least I didn't say pedantic. No, no. For years, I've been writing about Bible design at uh, BibleDesignBlog.com. And there's a passion that I have for specifically making the Bible readable. You know, one of the things that has happened to... the Bible over the centuries is that it's become increasingly a reference work. And so it gets designed that way. And so people are accustomed to seeing the, the Bible uh, text, you know, set in two columns. Oftentimes each verse is its own line. You've got verse numbers, you've got cross references, you've got all sorts of extra notes and apparatus and that sort of thing. And it looks like, uh, like a dictionary, you know, and mm-hmm. it, the kind of book that's you're just meant to look things up in. And oftentimes that's the way we use our Bibles. As a result, we, we're just constantly looking stuff up in the Bible and not reading it the way that we would an ordinary book. And so the beauty of a reader's Bible is that it looks like all the other books that you read cover to cover. Right. You know, it looks like the way a novel does. So you have one column of text you have paragraphs, but you don't have all of these interruptions. And so you get not verse by verse, but sentence by sentence and paragraph by paragraph. And you experience the text the way you would a text, not a sort of broken up bullet pointed list of, of things. And so this for me started as a passion years ago when I just began to wonder if part of the problem that people have in reading and understanding the Bible was not just like the translation, but the, the way it was presented. And so in our liturgy, whenever you see excerpts from scripture, whether it's our lectionary readings or our sermon text or anything where we're quoting scripture, it's always presented that way as the text, not with verse numbers and other kinds of interruptions. And so you're already experiencing the Bible that way in a a less mediated format. And so 
our hope is that everyone who enters into our community uh, becomes a a more devoted and deeper reader of the Bible. And so giving readers Bibles is a way of encouraging that kind of behavior. So we give you a Bible, not because, you know, you don't have access to the Bible in, in so many different forms these days, but because we really think there's something to like a deep reading where you just lose yourself in the text of scripture and this format really helps you do that. That's all the time we have for now. My thanks as always to Dan and Cameron, and thanks to you, our listeners. We appreciate you spending this time with us, and we hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.